Welcome to Whiskey and Wino. Welcome. So I have a few corrections for last week that so many I had to write them down. <laughs> We're so many, but just because some people gave me shit, I'm going to correct myself. I'm going to give you the actual fact about Walt Disney's mother. She did indeed die. So after Snow White came out in theaters in 1937... Um, it was the first Disney animated movie, Disney princess, blah, blah, blah. Him and his brother made a bunch of money and bought his parents a house in Burbank, which I said. They lived there one month, and his mother reported a weird smell coming from the furnace. So Walt sent the studio repairman, which they don't really know how to deal with that, um, to take a look. Unfortunately, the guy missed the leak in the furnace and the next day, November 26, 1938, Walt's mom and dad were found by the housekeeper unconscious. And yeah. she dragged them to the front yard. Flora, his mother, did not survive. By the way, Flora was the name of one of the fairies in Sipping Beauty. Oh. Um, his father, Elias, survived. So Walt Disney did harbor a lot of guilt. And just saying, Dumbo came out in 1941 and Bambi in 1942 and both the scenes with their mamas was very sad. Yes, indeed. And if anyone was wondering, Caitlin's mom was Winnie the Pooh when she was a character at Disneyland. Aww. And, um, so she was wearing the pants. This, I just discovered myself and I want to correct it before anyone else does. Sleeping Beauty's castle is at Disneyland. Cinderella's castle is at Disney world. Because okay. I think I said it was Cinderella's castle. So, there's my corrections for last week. But I thought it was an amazing episode. I thought it was a lot of fun. And so did a lot of people. Good. I had fun with it. Me too. We were glad Caitlin could join us for that. Absolutely. I mean, I got a lot of feedback from that episode. People laughed. And then my mom listened to it. And now I feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> no, I feel weird. All right. Well, speaking of your parents, we're going to dive into one of your dad's favorite (laughs) uh, conspiracy theories this week. So here's the deal. Um, So we're doing Roswell this week. There are a thousand books on Roswell and documentaries on the alien crash. We can't cover it all in one podcast. We we would need an entire separate broadcast to go over everything. So we're not going to Broadcast. We can't go over everything. So I just want you to know that Roswell is very close to my heart. So I'm dedicating this episode to my father. And I hope everyone enjoys it. Um, and at the end, we'll give you some good book recommendations or documentaries if you want to research on your own. But as for now, I'm going to let Jen take it away. And I'm going to interrupt her constantly. Yeah. She's going to give you the facts. I'm going to... Whatever she doesn't tell you, she's going to give you kind of the basic information. And I'm going to, if I have something to add, I will do it without cutting her off and being a jerk face. <laughs> Won't be. I'll try to wait to the end. So I'm excited for this because I know some of the conspiracies, but I don't know them truly. I just know, you know, it's out there in the ether. I've heard of things and whatnot. So I'm excited to hear about some of the interesting theories. I have there. to tell you real quick. My dad called me at like nine o'clock this morning and he was like, Hey, 
I need someone to pick me up in 20 minutes. I'm dropping my car off at a auto shop near your house. So come get me. And I was like, I'm still in bed. <laughs> so I sent my husband and then I made my dad sausage McMuffins. We, we just call them muffins here. So McDonald's doesn't sue us. Um, <laughs> but then we watched a, a Roswell documentary while he was here for a nice. couple hours. He was here. I had to keep him entertained. Roswell is in Lincoln County, New Mexico. And we all know this incident as the Roswell UFO incident. However, the crash site is located 75 miles from Roswell and is actually closer to the town of Corona, not Roswell. I wish they, I bet they wish they had jumped on that about now. <laughs> right. <laughs> like we need more Corona shit. That's a good um, point. <laughs> That's a really good point, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so, 1947, July, an object crashes outside of Roswell, New Mexico, near Corona. Um, no one knew what it was. It was a bright light, then it crashed. Okay, so think of 1947. There's not as many street lights. So, you know, once you're outside of town, it's really dark. Um, so that's why so many people saw it, because in 1947, a lot of people weren't inside their house at night watching TV. They were out on their back patio. It's the summer, having a beer, you know, hanging out. There's more more people were outside is what I'm trying to say. So that's why it became such a huge. It's not like now where no kids go outside. Nobody's ever outside. Yeah, where we see it on our cell phone because somebody posted it because <laughs> one. Yeah, right. Outside. <laughs> that's about right. So the United States Army Air Force investigated and it claimed it was a conventional weather balloon. The government stated that the weather balloon was launched from Alamogordo Airfield, an Army airfield in Ontario County, New Mexico. I kept wanting to say Ontario. I get that. I wanted you to say it. (laughs) (laughs) So the reason for the secrecy of the debris, this is what the government You know, this is their stance. The reason that the secrecy happened in the beginning was due to the fact that the balloon was part of a project called Project Mogul. So the debris that came down was not actually a weather balloon. But at the time, they said it was just an ordinary weather balloon because Project Mogul, it was a weather balloon, but it was a super top secret project it meant that there were microphones attached to this balloon because project mogul was trying to put microphones up in the atmosphere to listen for soviet nuclear testing sounds and the atomic bomb tests would put out a sound wave that hopefully this microphone could detect the long distance noise and give the united states some time to you know batten down the hatches or whatever the fuck they were going to do but that's why they hurry up and, you know, swept up the debris and like we're keeping it a big secret per the government. So because this weather balloon, quote unquote, was not the typical high altitude balloon, it had a lot of mechanical pieces to it. Obviously, it was hard for anyone who had knowledge of what a weather balloon was to take the government's word because the government said it's just a typical weather balloon. And people who knew weather balloons were like, fuck that. There's all sorts of like wires and mechanical stuff and metal 
Laser um, balloons are pretty small once they're deflated. Yeah, well, they're like a small hot air balloon, you know, but yeah, they inflate at the higher they go. And then there, but there's not a lot, there's not a huge black box or, you know, what it's not towing a whole lot of stuff. Yeah. Right. So this had a lot of metal. And so people who were familiar with the weather, weather, <laughs> the weather balloons, <laughs> I've had one sip of wine. They were like, no, that's bullshit. The government's lying, blah, blah, blah. It was William Brazel, Brazel, who was working for the J.B. Foster Ranch, who first noticed the site of the crash. The Did you have something to say? No. Go ahead. Oh. The different the differing accounts between the time and date versus the Roswell Army Airfield time and date fuels a lot of the conspiracy speculation. Okay, can I butt in really quick? Yeah. Yeah. I did try to make a timeline from the events, which like you said, it's super hard to do. Mm-hmm. I did do one from July fourth through July 9th which is the most accurate and the closest I could get to accuracy. Yeah. So if you want to go there, I have it. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't do that. So <laughs> it wasn't easy. I really had to work at this. Um, well, hold on. Let me go ahead. just talk about how he found it. Then we can go into okay. the timeline of how that happened. Um, William Brazell and his son were out and about, and they noticed the debris. They were working on this J.B. Foster's ranch. Some rubber strips, tinfoil, sticks, etc. He didn't think much of it. Um, but then he learned the next day that people in Roswell were talking about this flying object or this flying disc. And so he went and got it where he remembered it being. And he took it and like. I guess at the time that he found it, he like brushed it under some bushes, you know, like kicked it out of the way or something. So he went back and got it. And then William told the sheriff, the Roswell sheriff, that he may have found the flying disc. And he told him kind of a on the down low. But Sheriff Wilcox called the Roswell Army Airfield to bring in the investigation. So that's I just wanted to get how the debris was found out there. So go ahead with your timeline. Okay, so um, William Brazil is known as Mac. Um, He was a rancher. So, okay, so first I have to give you my source for a lot of this. um, It's a documentary. You can watch it on Amazon, Amazon Prime. It's free. It's called UFO Secret, The Roswell Crash, The Best Evidence, with researchers Don Schmidt and Kevin Randall who also wrote a book called The History of UFO Crashes. So they're very involved. Um, I think this was first came out in the 80s or 90s. My dad was trying to give me the video of it, but I don't have a VCR. And then I found it on Amazon Prime. So um, so here's the thing. A violent storm happened the night before Mac found the debris. Here, this huge, what he thought was thunder, but it was louder than like the rest of the thunder. Mm-hmm. So the next day he was out with his neighbor's son to check on the sheep after the storm. And they found the remnants of a crash as they oh, rode so it further. Wasn't his son? 
Uh, no, I have that it was a neighbor's son, the Proctors. Oh, gotcha. Um, but he did show his son the debris. Um, so Max started dragging the pieces to his shed. Um, and they took some of the pieces to the neighbor, which was the son's. Um, I don't know how old this kid was. I don't know if he was 10, if he was 20. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and they told him they might that might be wreckage from a UFO or a government project. And that he should notify the sheriff, which was George Wilcox. So this is what I found from that documentary and the things I researched on the timeline. So, and like I said, there's no accuracy. I have nothing to back this up except what I tried to research and put together. On July 4th, the government supposedly had a radar on this object. And they lost it on July 4th. Hmm. On July 5th, Mac found the debris. On July 6th, Mac told the sheriff what he found. On July 7th, maybe I shouldn't go this far because are you going to go into Jesse Marcel? Um, I don't think so. No, I'm not. No, okay. I'm almost I'm almost at the end of my government. The government said what it said and then it was like, this is it. We're sticking to it. Like, it seemed like every little bit of information that then became public knowledge, the government would somewhat tweak their weather balloon theory to fit whatever information was come forth. But I don't think they really ever changed their whole direction. They did not. The government put on kind of a demonstration to the town. And I don't know if it was televised on what a weather balloon looked like that matched all of this stuff. So that when, It was, you know, all the metal was being brought out and people were saying that's not what a typical weather balloon does. They put on the demonstration that was like, no, look, this is how ours worked. So that they could find an excuse for why it looked that way. And then. Because what their demonstration was for the lay people, you know, who don't know fuck about fuck about weather balloons they're i don't like, know oh, fuck about okay. fuck about weather balloons <laughs> yeah they're like okay that makes sense you know whatever and then it kind of just 47 i mean yeah okay it just kind of uh fizzled out and then it wasn't until 1978 when ufoologists gained an interest in the site again and i read most of this on the smithsonian magazine And it was the curator of the space history at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum, Roger Lanius. He said, quote, apparently it was better from the Air Force's perspective that there was a crash, crashed alien spacecraft out there than to tell the truth, unquote. Like they could have said, hey, it was some spy shit. They didn't have to say, you know, it was for this thing. So this curator of the Smithsonian was like, yeah, apparently the government was like, you know, we don't want to tell. So we're not going to tell, you know. Um, And, yeah, I found it interesting that it that it kind of fizzled out and then it was brought back up in the 70s. So long. There was a big difference. Yeah. So when Mac found these remnants, there were he called them hydroglyphics. He said it was like Egyptian writing. Um, Hieroglyphics? Hieroglyphics. I'm just quoting here. I thought you said hydroglyphics. I'm no, like, hieroglyphics. That sounds it's familiar, hieroglyphics. but I've never heard it. Um, and that's why he kind of like was gathering some of the stuff in his trunk. 
So July 5th is when he found it. July 6th, he went to the sheriff. July 7th, the sheriff called um, called in his friend, who is an intelligence officer at the 509th Bomb Group stationed at Roswell Army Airfield. So he calls Major Jesse Marcel, and, um, and that's on July 7th. July 8th, the press release came out that a flying disc had crashed near Roswell or near a ranch near Roswell. Mm-hmm. On July 9th, the press was told it was a weather balloon had crashed. So at first, the press was all over it. One of the reasons it was really hard to do the timeline, because some people say that Jesse waited two days before he actually drove it to Roswell into the sheriff about mm-hmm. the debris. One of the things about the debris is there was a, it was like melted glass. The sand had turned to melted glass. Like it was something very, very hot that had hit the ground. Um, so you think the, the lightning struck it down. And then as the lightning struck it down, it like melted the weather into I mean, the earth. Get, like beach glass. It's lightning hitting yeah. the sand. Yeah. Um, I only know what beach glass is from, uh, Sweet Home Alabama. Me too. Me too. (laughs) Um, Okay, so here's something that a lot of people don't know. There were actually two crash sites. Um, They didn't know it at at first. Um, A soldier had actually a soldier, a civil engineer, and an archaeologist all confirmed there was a second crash site, which they did not find until July 8th when they did an aerial sweep. They actually had, I believe it was Mac on the helicopter and because he knew the terrain, because this is a bunch of open desert. It's 1947. Mm-hmm. I mean, they don't have these big maps on it. So they took him out on this helicopter. Um, so the theory is, is that the big thunder that rancher had heard was actually the explosion. And that's oh. what the first debris they found was but that the aircraft actually flew three more miles before crashing. Oh. So, like, just bits of debris fell off in the initial yes. impact, so and then it, it exploded, off. but it didn't crash there. Okay. It just was the first explosion. For reasons, I guess, we'll never know. So, the civils, unfortunately, civilians found it first. They found an aircraft, and I'll get to who found them. They found an so aircraft. They were looking for this? No, I'll tell you why these people found it. Okay. Um, So they were actually a group of archaeologists and a group of students were studying a Native American tribe in the area at the time. And they came upon the scene, which was the second crash or the where the crash actually was. When they found it, they found an aircraft shaped like a circular disc sticking out of the ground and several humanoid bodies for to be approximate. They were four feet tall. They had big heads, long arms, big eyes, and one of them was still alive. Mm. So, so that's where we get the typical, you know, the the stereotypical grays. alien form. They call them the grays. Okay. So, um, they these archaeologists, this archaeologist and the students said they were so close they could have touched the bodies. So when the military got involved, the students were told to leave, never say a word. This is a national security issue. If they ever say a thing to anyone, the government will know and know where to find them. They all went back to their university, which is rumored to be somewhere in the Northeast. 
um, no one really ever heard from them again until 1975. And that is when one of the students made a deathbed confession to a nurse, Mary Ann Gardner, in St. Petersburg, Florida. The woman told the nurse about a UFO crash she had witnessed and about the little people with the big heads and eyes. She was told that they were wearing some kind of suit that was silver, but it seemed like it was fluid. And so before 1975, in movies that had aliens, did they look like the little green gray aliens? Not that I'm aware of. Okay. Uh, the green aliens, yes. The little, I don't know. I mean, I get what you're saying. Um, like, like, uh, did she the, have it in her head through, you know, cinema, and then she's making that fit her memory, or vice versa? Like. It's possible. I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. Because I'm trying to think about when, um, what is it, George Orwell did that whole uh, War of the Worlds thing, if that's what he said they look like. I don't know. No, those were giant. Okay. Those were like giant serpent type things that came out of the ground. Okay, okay so good. I'm going to say no. I'm okay. going to say it was not highly publicized at okay. that point. Um, she said it was the shiniest thing she'd ever seen. And she kept looking around the room, afraid that the government was going to hear her. So anyway, so Max, I, Mac, I said Max, it's supposed to be Mac. Mm-hmm. Mac was the one that leaked it to the media. Once the media found out all the roads were blocked leading to the crash site, all the phone lines in a Roswell were jammed with people calling from around the world wanting to know about this UFO. Wow. So... Max went to this radio station in Roswell on, I believe it was the 7th, and he did this pre-recorded interview. They got a call from the Pentagon saying if they ran that interview as planned, they would lose their license for the radio station. Wow. And then whoever they are searched all the newspaper and the radio station offices for any copies of press releases. And on July 9th, Mac went back to the radio station and did a completely different story. the weather balloon story. Was that um, first recording kept? Probably not. Yeah. Probably not because they were probably made to destroy it, being that Mm -hmm. the Pentagon came in and destroyed everything. Jesse Marcel was the guy from the Army base from the 509th. He actually also had a box of debris that he had brought in that was suddenly gone and replaced by the damaged weather balloon that they had taken pictures of for the newspapers. Huh. Um, and he's the one that had to let them know that the 509th, which is the army base he worked out of, got it all wrong. And what they found was a weather balloon and not an alien spaceship. So my thing is, if it was just a weather balloon, um, I'll, I'll put the picture up, too, because we do have the picture. Why were there all these men with machine guns? The roads were blocked for 60, not for 60 miles, for like 20 miles around, you know. Right. Yes. And there were 60 covered trucks were covering debris. So if you see this weather balloon, it's very small. Yeah. That you would not need 60 trucks to pick up all that debris. Well, even if you think about how computers in the, I mean, this is 1947. We're just off of World War Two. Mm. Like, so. Thank you for bringing it up. That's in my notes. Mm. Hold on. I'm sorry. I totally cut you off there. No, you just fine. brought up a really good point. 
I was just going to say, thinking about how com how big computers were back then, even if you were thinking that a microphone is not the same size as a microphone is today, it might be the size of like a U-Haul moving box. You know, it doesn't take 60 trucks. Right, right. To, Good to point. Get that. So even if it is larger than what we have today as microphones, it still doesn't warrant that. 60 trucks. Yeah. And all this. We'll get to Project Mogul, though. So, okay, so you would think, why Roswell? Like, if there's a UFO, why is it cruising around Roswell? I have a good reason. The atomic bomb was tested 100 miles from Roswell. What if the nuclear waves traveled all the way to space? Because on July 16, 1945, we did Hiroshima. Mm-hmm. And the 509th is where they kept over 45 atomic bombs. Oh, Wow. White Sands, New Mexico, is home of the top-secret missile testing range. B-2 rockets were built by the German scientists and tested there. So World War II had ended, but now we had all the German scientists. Right. So if you wonder, Paper well, why club. did they pick Roswell? Well, it's kind of weird. That's where we did all our nuclear testing. So I think that's a super good point to think of. Okay, so Jesse Marcel, we're back to the major Jesse Marcel. So he originally had taken a box of debris he collected from the original crash site. On the first night, he woke up his son, Jesse Jr., who is now Dr. Jesse Marcel, mm. at 2 a.m., showed the items to him and his wife. He remembers seeing this weird language on the pieces, like we talked about the hydroglyphics. <laughs> <laughs> In 1990, Dr. Jesse Marcel, the son, agreed to go under hypnosis to remember what the symbols were. Oh, Another witness, Frankie Rowe, said she was threatened if she talked. She would be separated from her family and go to prison. For years, she stayed silent out of fear. But then as years went by and more people began to talk, she finally came forward. Her father uh, was a state trooper at the time, and he showed her this crumpled up metal, metal, mental, uh, <laughs> metal ball. He set it down and it immediately went flat. So he said it was like taking a crumpled piece of foil mm -hmm. and then throwing it on the ground and it would go immediately back flat where there was no kinks in it, crinkles, nothing. Wow. It automatically back to being flat. So, so just to give you a little background on why my father is so invested in Roswell. So my dad first heard about Roswell. It was about 1963, 1964. Uh, my parents had gone to Dayton, Ohio to visit friends. They went on to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and my dad noticed that all the hangars were open. No big deal. They could drive on the base. They could go to the hangars. But one caught his eye. Um, it was guarded by a bunch of um, military police with machine guns. You couldn't get near it. So my dad asked his buddy about it. He said, did you catch the number on the hangar? He said, yes, I did. What do you think the hangar number was? 509. No, it was hangar 18. Oh, I don't know. Oh, wait. wait, there's a TV show on sci-fi called that. It's also a Megadeth song, but oh, I don't know anything about Megadeth. Hangar 18 is where they supposedly kept the bodies of the aliens that were found at the crash site. And we'll get to the aliens. Oh, I thought it was going to be 509 because it was the 509. No, Hangar 18. See, if you were in Roswell culture, you know, Hangar 18 is a big deal. Okay, I don't know. I did not know that Wright 
Patterson Air Force Base. I that did not explains, know that until my dad told me that. That explains the sci-fi show, though. Yes. Henry 18 <laughs> is where they supposedly kept the aliens. So this is my dad in 1963, 64. I think it was probably more 64. Um, so my dad's like, yeah, it was Henry 18. And this is Dayton, okay. Ohio? It was in, I don't know, it was just right Air Force Base. Oh, yes, it was right out, oh. It was right outside of Dayton, Ohio, yes. Okay. So um, my dad was told that debris from a crashed spaceship was in there. And my dad is like, what? Like, what are you talking about? Because, mm-hmm. you know, there's no social media. There's no, the newspapers, I mean, my dad would have been like three years old when the crash happened. Yeah. Um, and just to put in perspective, TV didn't come to be until the 1950s. So in 1946, there were only 6,000 TVs in the country. Wow. But by 1951, there were 12 million in U.S. homes. So back then, it was mostly through newspapers, or if you had a lot of money, you had a TV. Yeah, or the radio. Yes. So my dad got really curious about this. So my parents moved to California in 1969. Um, my dad is walking around Hollywood and these guys are selling these underground newspapers. And so my dad started learning about what really happened in Roswell. So my dad first started reading about this in underground newspapers in 1969, 1970. That's so rad that he had underground newspapers. Oh, he does. He, it's crazy. It's crazy. So to keep adding on to my dad's story here. So in the early 1990s, the International UFO Museum and Research Center opened in Roswell, New Mexico. My dad and mom, of course, my dad, that's where he wanted to take his vacation. So my dad sends my mom back to the hotel. They go to the museum and he tells my mom, go back back up to the hotel. And he walks up to the admin research center and just knocks on the door. So the director or whatever they call him, the curator, opens the door and my dad tells him, look, I've been following this shit for like a really long time. Um, what video or books do you recommend that I just have to see? That's not like a bunch of bullshit. Like, I want to know the real story. Mm-hmm. So the curator asks him a few questions, probably making sure they don't call security. Right. He's not wearing a tin hat. Quizzing him to see how serious he is, how much information. Is he a, yeah, is he a absolutely. Fed? <laughs> so he tells my dad, hold on, I have some people that you're going to need to talk to. So he brings out the police. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> that would have been a whole different tale. Um, he brings out these two researchers, investigators, and this is their story. And I can back the story up because my dad's recollection and then I researched it. He's totally dead on in most of it, but I have the real story that's actually been put out there. So back then, my dad was kind of the first to hear about it, but now it's pretty well known in the UFO world. So here's a really cool ass story. So in early July, 1947, Glenn Dennis was a mortician at Ballard funeral home in Roswell, New Mexico. He received two telephone calls from RAAF mortuary officer. I looked that up and now I can't remember what it stands for. RAAF. Oh God. Why did I put that in my notes or did I? Do I have it somewhere? It's it's something to do. It's a military thing. Uh, it's an Air Force. Fuck, I don't remember. I'm sorry. I could Google it really quick. Okay. It's the Royal Australian Air Force. Okay, it's not really that. Oh. <laughs> okay. 
I can tell you right now, Australia was not involved. Um, How about the... Oh, it's Roswell Army Airfield. That's what it stands for. Okay. So the mortuary officer calls this mortician. In his first call, the officer asked Dennis if the funeral home stocked child-sized caskets that could be hermetically sealed. Um, Okay. Time out. It's the fucking government. Couldn't they make their own? Why do they need to involve other people? I don't know. I guess they couldn't put a casket together. They didn't think about just building a wooden box. Fucking saran wrap them. Then they called back. Okay, from what I I actually had read, that he told them that he only had one, but he could order more overnight, is what he told them. So, anyway, during the second call, they asked about preparing and preserving tissue. Both times, he indicated that his questions were just routine for further reference. Later that same day... Dennis received a call to transport an injured airman to the RAAF, and um, he also ran the ambulance service. It's a very small town. So he was a mortician, and he was an ambulance driver. All right. He delivered the airman to the hospital. He noticed there was a bunch of strange debris inside another ambulance parked beside him. As he entered the building, Dennis encountered a nurse he knew, Naomi Scheif, who looked really shaken. She told him to leave quickly, and two other military men reinforced her command and even threatened him. And if you go on a couple of documentaries, like, it it got a little worse. They kind of really pushed him. So the next morning, Dennis and this nurse met for coffee at the officer's club, where she told him that she had assisted in autopsies on three small gray bodies. She sketched a picture on a napkin of the creatures with large heads. Large slanted eyes and four fingers on each hand, adding that the bodies had smelled so bad that they were eventually moved from the hospital to Hangar 84 out by the airstrip. A few days later, the nurse was transferred, and later word came that she had died in an airplane crash. He didn't tell anyone about it until the 1980s. He told these investigators. I just have such a hard time. The efficiency... I suppose being the government, it does make sense that they're not doing it as efficient as they should be. However, why would you involve so many people that are just unnecessary? I mean, the government has people who know how to preserve tissue. The government has people who are already sworn into oath. This is in in the 1940s. Yeah, but don't you think that they have... People within the government network that are top secret people that know shit. I think maybe they didn't realize what they had on their hands at the time. Because these Little are people like people? that are specialized. Like this is before Area 51 and all that. Like Scully and Mulder aren't there no, yet. No, I mean, we haven't gone to the moon yet or anything. Yeah. So this is all really new. So maybe they didn't. You know, we didn't talk about, we didn't do transplants and shit like that then. Okay, so she died in an airplane crash, right? So he told these investigators her name and that she was from St. Paul, Minnesota, and there was no records of anyone with that name ever stationed at RAF from Minnesota. Apparently, though, there's a database with every person who has ever entered the medical field or first responder database in St. Louis, Missouri. It's still there to this day. They found her name. She Hmm. had talked about being a nun 
and she was found in a convent in Minnesota. They found this woman that supposedly died in a plane crash. Oh, wow. Um, so they flew up there to meet with her. They asked her for her full name, Naomi Marie Self. Yes, she was once in the military. Yes, she was a nurse at Roswell Air Force Base in 1947. She was threatened and she left nursing to become a nun so she would never have to lie about what happened, what she had seen. Would she take a vow of silence? Yes. Oh, well, no. But I guess she figured she could hide out as a nun and that no one would ever ask her. Or if they did, she couldn't lie to them. And that's how Whoopi Goldberg got her idea to go hide <laughs> in nuns and sister to hide in a nunnery. So they showed her the alien Not pictures. called a nunnery. <laughs> a nunnery? A convent? A nunnery. Um, so they showed her alien pictures, and she flipped out, and the Mother Superior, I put Mother Supreme, <laughs> the Mother <laughs> Superior wouldn't let them speak to her anymore. The Air Force came out in, like, 1995 and said that they had the wrong name, and it was Lieutenant Aline Fanton, but her age and description do not fit what Glenn Dennis said that he was or her name was. Mm-hmm. Now, I've also read that she was she wasn't just a friend. Like when my dad told the story, he told me they were engaged. Oh, I've read other stories. It was a friend. But I also read other stories that said, yes, they were indeed engaged. OK, so but 1947, you could know somebody for three days and be engaged. engaged. Right. So, so the story my dad told me was that they were engaged. He had ran into her at the hospital when he dropped off the caskets is what my dad had told me and that she had told him leave. And then when he called her a couple days later, they said, I don't know who you're talking about. She doesn't work here. And then a week later, someone came to his door and told her that she had died in a plane crash, that they had sent some nurses over to England for some special training and the plane had crashed. Wow. So that's the story my dad told me. Yeah. Now here's the kicker. So I told you his name was Glenn Davis or Dennis, uh-huh. right? Glenn Dennis is also the founder of the Roswell International UFO Museum. Mm. And when I called my dad, I said, do you know that the guy you talked to was actually the mortician in Roswell and the curator of the museum? Like he started it. My dad has like oh. no idea. So. There are some of your facts, but now I'm going to tell you some fun stuff. If that wasn't fun for you. Um, I'm still upset with how many people are involved that didn't need to be involved. It would be so different if it happened nowadays. There wouldn't be as many people involved. This is from NewYorkMagazine.com and TheWashingtonPost.com. So after President Harry Truman, he was the president when Roswell happened, um, instructed the Secretary of Defense, James Forrestal, to set up Operation Majestic 12, which is a blue ribbon top secret panel headed by Venever Bush, a leading Manhattan project figure. Manhattan I want to be project. part of something that's called the Majestic something. The Majestic 12. Yeah. Um, he ran the Manhattan project, which was our nuclear the bombs. bombs. Mm-hmm. Um, he also was the creator of the Memex machine, which was the first modern day computer. No. Oh. So, <laughs> this is so crazy. Researchers contend that MJ-12 brokered a sit-down meeting between the space aliens and President Dwight Eisenhower. What? So, this is crazy. So, 
apparently Dwight Eisenhower interrupted his vacation in Palm Springs, California, to make a secret nocturnal trip to a nearby Air Force base to meet two extraterrestrials. Extraterrestrials. A nocturnal visit. That just makes it sound so scandalous. So, like, cross and dagger. Cloak and dagger. (laughs) So, or maybe not. Maybe Ike just went to the dentist, and I'll tell you why I just said that. So, Ike met with the ETs, right? The theory is... This is from this guy, Mike Sala. He's the former American University professor who runs the Peace Ambassador Program for Global Peace. So this is his thing. So the Ike went to the dentist theory is advanced by the folks at Dwight Eisenhower Library in Kansas. And a dentist. This is, there's this professor of dentistry. Hmm. I guess nobody knew where he was this night. And on this exact same night, when no one knew where the president was, The Associated Press reported that President Eisenhower died tonight of a heart attack in Palm Springs. Two minutes later, the Associated Press retracted the bulletin and reported that Ike was still alive. He just had gone to the dentist because a chip tooth, a chip tooth, a tooth chipped. (laughs) So this night in question, when he supposedly met with these aliens, they said, no, he was at the dentist. Oh, he had a heart attack. No, he didn't. So there's this always been this debate on where he was on February 20th, 1954. Okay, but hold the fuck up. There was a whole night where no one knew where the president was? Yes. Was everybody fired? I mean, <laughs> Jesus. That's, so a, that's a big problem. Here are the facts. So Eisenhower was on a golf vacation in Palm Springs on February 20th, 1954. After dinner that night, he made an unscheduled departure from the Smoking Tree Ranch where he was staying. The next morning, he attended church in Los Angeles. No big deal. And they said that I could visit a dentist the night before because he chipped a tooth while eating a chicken wing. Hmm. That's why you shouldn't eat things with bones in them. <laughs> so they think the dentist trip was a cover story. It's like, oh, we didn't know where he was because it was like this emergency dental vision. Dental vision? Did I say dental vision? Yes, you did. Did I really? Yes. That's weird. (laughs) Dental visit. (laughs) So here's what gets even weirder. So this guy, this PhD, Sala, believes that Ike went to Edwards Air Force Base where he met with two ETs with white hair, pale blue eyes, and colorless lips. Where is Edwards Air Force Base again? By Palm Springs. Okay. I think it's 99 Palms. 29 okay. Palms. I'm 29 sorry. Palms is the military palms. base. Yeah. 99. 99 bananas. <laughs> so these aliens are nicknamed the Nordics to UFOologists out there. They look like Scandinavian humans. They traveled to Edwards Air Force Base from another solar system. And they spoke to Eisenhower through telepathic communication. Whoa. So the Nordics. <clears throat> to share their superior technology with us if we would eliminate the nuclear weapons. They were afraid we might blow up some of our our nuclear technology and it would impact time and space and extraterrestrial races on other planets. Ike declined wow. the ETs offer because he did not want to give up the nukes. Because, you know, we just went through World War II. That's kind of how we won and everyone knew to back off. Okay, but also now we know there's aliens. 
I'm not giving up my who who's to know that you're not going to come attack us if you know we're defenseless. Oh, see, look at you. I know. I'm just I was made to be part of this majestic 12. <laughs> you're like, no, I would be like, yeah, <laughs> be in peace. And you're like, no, fuck you. You're going to come and get us. and We're going to have to nuke your ass. <laughs> so this is where it's it weirder. If it can get weirder, it can. Mm-hmm. Sometime in 1954, Ike, President Ike, <laughs> President Eisenhower, reached a deal with another race of extraterrestrials known as the Greys, which is the ones we're talking about, the ones we see. Now we, we have the, skin, the the nor- wait, the Northerners or the, the Nordics, the Nordics, which are the pale, the Greys kind of look like us, and then we have the Greys. Okay. Now the Greys made a deal with with them, allowing them to capture earthling cattle and humans for medical experiments, provided that they return the humans safely. Now, so apparently the greys kidnap millions of people every year. Okay? I'm bringing back. They didn't care in that day and age about our mental health because there's a lot of people who have been returned who are not quite right in the mental department. Um. So here's the crazy shit. This is where it gets really interesting. Um, with the agreement they reached with these aliens, like, we'll let you study our human biology. I don't know why they always want to kidnap cows. That's the one thing that floors me, like, just cows. Cows and humans. Well, they're huge. They taste great. And they have four stomachs. They're very but intriguing animals. They do taste great. You you got me at taste great. They like a good steak. I get but it. But so do pigs. And they don't. I mean, pigs don't have four stomachs, but... That could be. That's a good point. So, um, so they can abduct us as long as they bring us back nicely, and they can mutilate our animals in exchange for extraterrestrial black technology that would lead to the developments like the B-2 stealth bomber. Um, and I'm going to get to the other things. I don't know why I'm pointing at my microphone like it's going to talk. <laughs> Later, it's been suggested that JFK threatened to reveal the MJ-12 alien negotiations, and that's really why he was assassinated. Ooh, he probably told Marilyn first. He probably did. He probably did, and that's why they probed her in the ass. They wanted to leave it an alien. Yeah. That's why the suppository was there. So who should be thanked for the post-World War II boom in communications technology? So apparently the Greys gave us transistors, lasers, fiber optics, microchips, superconductors, and miracle materials like carbon fiber. Okay, hold on. So now we are going to credit little gray aliens before crediting one of the most beautiful bombshell actresses who gave us Wi-Fi, Hedy Lamar. <laughs> we would rather be talking, we would rather give credit to aliens. Yes. We, we reverse engineered their alien spacecraft. That's how we got the stealth. Mm-hmm. Yes. I do believe all that too, because after 1947, our technology went so far in advance that technology had not done before. We jumped so far, so fast technology wise. Okay. Let me counter. I am my father's daughter, but go ahead. I agree to a certain extent. However, If you look at how we've come from the year 2000 to now, 
it's a huge jump if you look back into this decade, you know, or I guess longer than that because we're now in 2021. But, you know, those 20 years, if you go back to the, the 40s to the 60s, that huge jump in technology, it's not like it's crazy. Like once you start the ball rolling, you know, it kind of has that snowball effect. Like now right. you know what they need. Like the first cell phone manufactured yeah. into, I mean, in the 80s, we, we had car phones and they had those big phones like the Zach Morris phone in the 90s. Right. <clears throat> but yeah, I agree that that there was a whole lot of technology happening pretty quick. But yes. Okay, here's something even trippier. In 1965, an anonymous source claimed to be a retired defense intelligence agency official outlined um, a Roswell exchange program that in 1965, they sent 12 Americans from the Nevada test site to the aliens' homeworld, known as Serpo. The eight were returned in 1978 at a military installation for six years. Does that sound a little familiar? Hold on. The, let me just back up a second. So we had the 12 and eight came back? Yes. What happened to the other four? I don't know. Okay. I was stuck on that. I'm sorry. So if you think about what that sounds familiar, that's Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which came out, I'm going to say approximately 1978. I've never seen it. You've never... I can't talk to you sometimes. It freaks me out. You know I don't like scary movies. It's not really a scary movie. Yeah, it like is. That. But supposedly the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind was about this treaty. Many believe that President Reagan's Star Wars missile defense plan was actually developed to protect, not against a Soviet nuclear attack, but against alien invasion. Hmm. So let's move on to the late 1980s. Okay. Depending on who you ask, um, there's a group convened by the Defense Department to research alien weapons and biotechnology and run as an interference on civilian investigations or um, academics, military figures, trying to leak information. In 1989, Bob Lazar, which is what my dad and I watched his um, documentary today on Wait, Amazon he, or Netflix. He's a big alien guy, right? He's a Lazar? big conspiracy theorist, yes. Yeah, he is I know huge. the name. He claimed to have worked on a project called S-4, which is at Area 51 in Las Vegas. Stargate? Oh, not in Las Vegas, in Nevada. Um, he told a Las Vegas TV station that while working at Area 51, he came across the flying saucers and hangars and had an element so heavy it could not be synthesized on Earth. Wow. Um, how, who, how can you move? Like, where did it come from? Aliens. No, but like, did they deposit it in Area 51? Like, no, where it was part of the spacecraft. That's where the spacecraft is kept, supposedly, is at Area 51. Okay. And then the aliens are supposedly, we'll get to the aliens in a minute, are supposedly at Hangar 18. And now probably at Area 51. I don't know. Okay. <clears throat> 2001, Gary McKinnon, the hacker at the center of a dispute between the UK and US claims, um, he found the Disclosure Project, which collected testimony from air traffic controllers, nuclear missile technicians, and others confirming the existence of UFOs. And I was actually going to research, if you ever look up pilots and what they see out there when they're flying, 
they yeah. have the most incredible UFO stories. Like it's everyone has seen something. Oh, do you remember um, that one where the guy was flying? Like I, this is going to be ridiculous. It wasn't that long ago. I know the one you're talking about. The one where they thought he was upside down and saw the reflection in the ocean, but he really wasn't. Like he was saying that there was a craft that was above his yes. thing, and they were telling him, "No, you're in rever- you're you're inverted," you're and it wasn't that wasn't the case. I don't know. So, yeah, I there's was, a lot. I was like, "That's a whole new podcast. I'm not going to go into the pilots." Yeah. Um, I want to go over a couple things that presidents have said or seen that they've actually come out about because there's not a lot. There's a whole book dedicated to it. I'm totally going to read it. I put it on my Amazon book list last night. Um, So in the 1970s, reports of UFO UFO sightings were occurring all across the United States. Then governor uh, of Georgia, Jimmy Carter, I literally, I almost thought about doing a whole different podcast on the presidents and what they've known. And I might do that later once I read this book, but I'm going to tell you a few of the things. So at the time, Jimmy Carter was just the governor of Georgia. He reported okay. seeing a suspicious self-luminous aircraft in 1973, four years before he was the 39th president of the United States. A few years later, during his pre- presidential campaign in 1976, he said he was still convinced that what he had seen was a UFO from a different galaxy Yeah. that he promised. He was just out there on his peanut farm. Yes, before this peanut farm. <laughs> Maybe it was after, I don't know. Um, he was going to publicize all UFO-related knowledge, including what happened at Roswell, if he were to be elected to office. It was so significant that among all the many UFOologists out there were, like, totally pushing this guy. Did he say anything after he got elected into office? We'll get to that. Take okay. a drink. Okay. <laughs> After President Carter was elected to office in 1977, he then started that release. He started. He then stated that he could not release any UFO related knowledge because it would pose a national security risk. And the story behind the Roswell crash would remain unaddressed by the government for the next two decades. Oh, my God. A president went back on his promise after got elected. That's insane. So we get to 1994 which is when Clinton. you come out, when you already said, this is from Britannica.com. In 1994, the Air Force admitted that the recovered material was not a U.S. Um, um, weather balloon. Weather balloon. Mm-hmm. It was actually part of Project Mongol, which, like you said, it was a nuclear test by the Soviet Union, blah, 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 to catch the missiles. Yeah. They ventured that... The stories of the alien bodies that came from the civilian witnesses who saw it were actually parachute crash dummies, a severely injured airman parachutist, and charred bodies from an airplane crash um, just to kind of see um, what would happen, like, with this Project Mongol, which kind of makes mogul, sorry, makes no sense. Like, so, that's what the bodies they saw were. were that woman... That woman who said that the they saw the alien body or whatever that was like the brightest thing she's ever seen. Right. The was that just like a guy on fire? What's funny is um, in the documentary, like I said, just watch the documentary if you really want to see about it. I'll tell you the name again. I'll post it on the website. 
she had said that that was just their outside covering, that it was just kind of their way, probably Earth's atmosphere, that they couldn't uh. live in it, and that was just kind of a covering, and once that ripped apart is why they died, but there was one supposedly still alive, and I'll get to that in one second. Hmm. Actually, I'll get to it now. I asked my dad about it because I couldn't find anything about this one live alien. So I asked my dad, I go, where's the live alien? He goes, that's what was at Hangar 18 was supposedly this alien that had survived, which if you watch Independence Day, you know, mm-hmm. they go to Area 51, they see the alien, blah, blah, blah. Did you watch that movie with the alien and, and Seth Rogen? <laughs> Were they in the RV? I did not put that in my notes. It's quite a good documentary. But, I mean, there's so many books right now out about Roswell. Like, there's a couple really good ones. I'm like, God, I wish I would have known about these before. I didn't have time to read three books last night. They were also, like, 12 bucks each. Um, But there's some great books. There's some great documentaries. There's so much more background. I mean, Project Blue Book is all about what the government's found on the UFOs, and they have released it. A lot of it's blacked out. If you buy Project mm-hmm. Blue Book, my dad actually has the book. Of course he does. A lot of it's lined through what they still won't disclose to you. I just, yeah. that's a whole different animal, so I didn't go into Project Blue Book. But you can look it up. It's very easy to research. Um, so we tried to give you all the fun facts about Roswell. I mean, these this documentary was really cool. Like, it goes about these archaeologist students that just came upon this crash looking for Native Americans and what they saw. And this guy that runs the Roswell Museum, that he was the mortician. I did not know that. That's why he is so passionate and started this research center in Roswell. Did you email them? Yes. At the time, I did email them. When Jen and I first discussed doing Roswell, because my dad became really good friends with this guy, um, this guy he had talked to, it, it probably wasn't Glenn Dennis, but it was somebody up there in the hierarchy, probably the curator. Um, my dad went back and forth with them for a long time, so I thought maybe, not that I gave any names, but I did email them in the middle of COVID. It was back when COVID was still in its kind of crazy time, and I never heard back. Which, it was I mean, right. I'm sure they get a thousand emails every day and from crazy yeah. people. and It whatever, was right but, when we all locked down. Yeah. It was like the beginning of last year. Yeah. I'm going to say it was in probably May or June of last year. And COVID started, like, everything shut down in March. March. Yeah. So it was around then. Um, but I was hoping that they would, like, I was just looking for good sources. Because there's also a lot of whack jobs out there. Um, another great book is um, Behold yeah. a Pale Horse by William Cooper. His whole background is a whole different podcast as well. He was actually killed by police. He, oh my God, there's so much I could go on about him, but you want to read a really good conspiracy book. It also talks about the AIDS epidemic and why it was created, supposedly. Oh. Um, and he was supposedly a Navy um, intelligence officer, and he was killed by police in wow. 1990. And you can get his book for free if you go to their website. Um, hmm. But Behold a Pell Horse is a great book. It's very thick. It's a lot to go through. It's a lot of government documents. That we'll is our, on, We'll put all these on the website. Yeah. So you guys can. I, my dad makes it a thing that we all have a copy. <laughs> um, I actually sent one to Caitlin like five years ago. Caitlin does not believe in UFOs. 
Um, it is something my dad and I have been writing on her for years. It's just something we, and I made her read this book. <laughs> and but she's still not a convert? She actually told me the other day, I haven't read it yet, but I'm going to, Aunt Erin. And mm-hmm. I'm like, I sent it to you like two years ago. It's like my dad doesn't believe in ghosts, but he believes in UFOs. Caitlin believes in ghosts, but not UFOs. Which well, I think you have to be kind of naive not to think there's something else out there besides us. Dude, you your brain can only tolerate so much. If somebody has to block out one thing to believe in another thing. You no. Know, me and I believe balance. in another thing. I just think there's so much more out there in the galaxy, in the world, in the universe that we just don't know about. Yeah. And maybe I'm wrong. I hope if I go to heaven, I get to find out everything. That That would be heaven. Find out everything. That would be my heaven. I want to know everything. Like at the end of Crystal Skulls, the fourth Indiana Jones movies, I'm like that chick. I want to know everything. I want to know everything you know. I could get into the Crystal Skulls, and that's a whole different animal, too. Oh, boy. Well, there are archaeologists in that. And, you know, we were just talking about archaeologists, so way to tie it in. Indiana Jones, man. (laughs) He's the man. So I hope this was a different perspective than you've heard on Roswell yeah and let us know what you think because I still find it fascinating so that's our podcast like I said I'll put everything up on the website when I post when it's ready this podcast is ready I'll put up some cool books I think are interesting I'll tell you the documentary again and like I said it's free on prime it's worth it it's an hour and a half long and I mean these guys this is their passion these are highly trained people they're not just some rando with a tin hat. They're not just random people with a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> They're not like us. They actually have like backgrounds and shit. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll talk to you next week. All right. Ciao. Bye.